Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I am one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here as ever with regular co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you this week? It's good to be back. I am not going to say the truth, which is that I am tired beyond belief. So what I'm going to say instead (laughs) is I'm absolutely buzzing. We're going to have a great show. Cannot wait to get our proverbial teeth into it. Uh, But seriously though, it's that feeling, Paul, is it not? That when you step into the podcast recording zone, you go from being sort of exhausted by the the arduous tasks of the week and you suddenly become energized because we're going to talk about films for the next hour so um i'm, I'm yes. in for that I, yeah no i'm, I'm so, very psyched to be here this week i think it's been a strong week for releases uh i haven't caught up with everything i wanted to catch up with yet this week uh but i think it's been a, a strong strongest week i can remember in a while and i think that everything pretty much everything we can talk about today i like minimum but bare minimum liked if not really liked so uh yeah excited to be here and as you say it's always nice talking about films uh which is what we're going to do this week. Pete, what have we got on the show today? So on the show, we are catching up on, well, as you said, uh, all the things that have come out recently. So we're going to feature two films. Those will be the Lee Whannell um, rework of The Invisible Man, and then the Todd Haynes movie Dark Waters, which we previewed. Obviously, we previewed both of those on last week's show, Incoming Attractions. In addition to that, we have all the regular sections of the show. At the very tail end of the show, that means credits. Before the feature, that means coming attractions that are coming to screens near you this week and before that we've got popcorn movies reviewing and rounding up the other stuff that we've watched that isn't maybe the new releases of the week but first of all my man let's step into the foyer in the foyer is the place where we go to discuss film news paul what's happened in film news this week because to be honest with you i'm totally out of the loop (laughs) <laughs> well this week uh bond the latest bond film due for release i believe april 10th or certainly early april um has been now been pushed back i think until november the 20th um the mgm the parent company is citing um financial instability at the box office due to fears on coronavirus maybe they're doing this for the right reasons maybe they're doing it because they're scared it won't make any money but regardless we're in kind of unheard of territory here for big blockbusters to be pushed back due to potential pandemic scale viruses this is a very strange situation to be in um and obviously it it should prove very interesting to see if any other studios follow suit on this one yeah i mean coronavirus seems to be having this uh, sort of knock-on effect on all kinds of areas of cultural life and society at large i mean the pushback of the bond film should be i mean way down the list if we're completely honest well yeah absolutely but, yeah. yeah for sure but i mean these things impact our lives i mean hearing that all kinds of sporting events are going to be potentially cancelled and postponed impacts on my life and i realize at the same time that like this announcement about bond it's not that significant but um i suppose paul you know, taking it as read that there are more important things in the world. Where were your anticipation levels for No Time to Die? Um, bef- it's Carrie Car- Fukunawa was directing it, so uh, I was quite looking forward to this one, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, very much looking forward to this one. I kind of blow, I blow hot and cold with Bond these days. Um, I kind of think that the premise is a little bit outdated, and I haven't I certainly didn't love Spectre. I thought Skyfall was decent, but yeah, I, I was quite excited for this. Um, any thoughts from you, Pete? Are you a, you're not a massive Bond fan, unless no, I'm otherwise mistaken. No, but. you're right, man. Like I was uh, as a as a young pup, I was definitely really into Bond stuff because you are at that age and it's 
cool. Then you get to that stage around about 18 when you realise it's all kind of hackneyed and sexist. Uh, and you kind of get soapboxy about that for a while. And then I've kind of come round to this, you know, not rebooting, but sort of reinvention of the Bond franchise as something that is, again, a bit more contemporary and a bit cooler, particularly with Daniel Craig in the leading role um, and the recent release uh, schedule that they've they've kept to. So I guess I'm kind of with you, Paul. I, I blow a bit hot and cold. I kind of look forward to them as big cinematic events, but I don't go in with massively high expectations. I go in expecting some good old-fashioned popcorn fun. Um, and when it's Carrie Fukunaga, I mean, yeah. let's not forget, this is the guy who made Sin Nombre, which is a superb piece of uh, cinematic work. And so if he can bring half of the sort of heart and sort of sumptuous beauty of that movie to Bond, then I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. And there could be many other directors that I'd be less excited about if they were helming the project. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the other thing that may prove interesting for this is if, if the if the corona, corona, coronavirus continues at the pace it's continuing at is whether or not we see some of the smaller cinema releases pushed onto streaming services. Um, so yeah, I think IndieWire, IndieWire did actually did an article on this the other day actually that made for fascinating reading. Obviously, with the proviso there are more important more important things happening with coronavirus, but we are a film podcast. Yeah, so, yeah. Whether or not whether or not we we do see one of some of the big Marvel releases pushed back or some of the bigger temporal releases pushed back or the smaller releases cancelled its entirety because I guess if the government starts closing down public spaces, cinemas arguably are probably not the best place you can be in the middle of a if you've ever seen outbreak you should have a fair understanding of cinemas and probably not the best place to be in this situation so interesting times um and yeah it's a bit of a shame this has all happened really yeah um i mean there the the cast for uh, the new bond also is a, a reason why i suppose you can have a level of anticipation for it from is is leah sadu's character madeline swan is she returning from the last yes, film, yes. yeah, I thought so. Um, yeah. And then Anna Diarmas, obviously um, centrally involved here, um, who was so great in, in Knives Out most recently. Uh, Christoph Waltz, uh, Rami Malik, Ray Fiennes, Naomi Harris, who obviously is returning as well. I mean, all kinds of um, great performances, probably in the offing for Bond. It's just, yeah, whether by the time November rolls around, we're still going to sort of be as enthusiastic for it I don't know whether there's going to be um, whether there are sort of diminishing returns when it comes to getting hyped for a big release and then having it pushed back and maybe that anticipation waning a little bit over the months yeah I think it's I mean there's been a long wait for this Bond film anyway so I can't I, can, I can't see it making anything other than, than than a big amount of money but yeah it seems it's just yeah it's a bit of an anticlimax this close to release um, yeah it's just the whole thing the whole thing is a shame <laughs> yeah we, we've kind of um, yeah. we, we can be upfront about the fact dear listener that we've kind of talked about doing a uh, top five for the show which would be top five pandemic movies but to be honest right now we might wait for this all to blow over before we uh, you know get ourselves into hot water by looking like we're being incredibly inappropriate in doing such a top five so yeah for now we'll wait on the release of Bond and also as you brought up Paul to see how this affects cinematic releases as opposed to those shunted sideways onto uh, home releasing through streaming services and it'll be interesting to see the impact that that has on the cinematic landscape over the the coming months and particularly obviously those huge summer months which means so much to so many distributors. 
Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as I said, interest unprecedented times. I think certainly, certainly in 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 memory for me. So yeah, it should be should be yeah morbidly interesting, shall we say, or morbidly fascinating? I guess. Yes, it, indeed. Well, I'll tell you what else will be fascinating, sir. Uh, that will be the popcorn movie section of our show, in which we're going to review all all manner of films that have come out all over the the map. To be honest, from uh, historical classics through to the most modern of releases. This is what we cover in Popcorn Movies, and that's coming up right after this. Okay, so back we are with Popcorn Movies. As Pete mentioned before the break, this is any film of any age that we've seen generally in the past seven days. Um, the one, first one I wanted to start with um, is a new release that we did feature last week that's doing the rounds on Curzon Home Cinema at the moment, and I believe in a limited run of cinemas across the country. Um, this is Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the latest film from director Celine Sciamma, uh, starring Naomi Milan and Adele Hanel. Um, which is highly anticipated. This is um, a love story. Um, basically, it's set on an isolated island of Brittany at the end of the 18th century. A female painter is apply is obliged to paint a, port- a wedding portrait of a young woman. So there's two young women. The One of the young women, played by Adele Hannell, Basically, is being forced into an arranged marriage. She doesn't want to be a re- she doesn't want to be in. Um, Naomi Milan plays the plays the painter who comes to stay with her. Her mother, the mother's been commissioned to her mother's commissioned this painter to paint Adele Hanel's character um, for the husband to be. Um, Adele Hanel's character does not want to be painted. Has proven difficult to work with in the past. And Naomi Merlin's character has to paint her from sort of brief glances and memory because she won't pose for her. Um, suffice to say, uh, they they fall in love. Uh, and what follows is, I, I don't know how many times I can say this this year, I feel spoiled already. What follows is one of the most beautiful films my eyes have ever seen in parts, Pete. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be frank with you. It is a meticulously shot film. The performances are absolutely incredible. Um, there's some set pieces will just app would just melt your heart like it, it would it immediately like it's 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 sexy where it needs to be in in all the right ways it's very interesting to see this film from the perspective of a female gaze um Celine Sciamma did an interesting I think interview with the Guardian the other day about like or maybe the Independent actually about how everything we've seen is from the male gaze it's very interesting to see this from a female gaze perspective this love story between the two young women it's heartbreaking in places it's hundred it's, it's fast such a such a good film pete such a good film it's an incredible piece of work it's it's deservedly hyped the performances as i said are, are superb and i would be very surprised if you don't immediately fall in love with this it took a while for me to warm up to the characters but i think that's 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 kind of where you're meant to go with it but when i did i yeah i fell in love with the film as the characters are with each other yeah i mean i i can be uh, confessional on this podcast i'm going to increasingly do that probably over the weeks i think uh i started watching a portrait of a lady on fire and i got maybe five to ten minutes in and I stopped not because it's anything other than uh, what seemingly is a, a beautiful piece of work and certainly from what you've said it sounds to like it is that 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 very uh, film but I got that far through and I thought I'm just not in the right frame of mind I was overtired I was feeling a bit grumpy and I was like this is a film that deserves my full and undivided attention so I'm going to give oh, it, it that attention yeah, in due does. course probably by the time the next podcast record rolls around so don't be surprised if it comes up in my popcorn movies next week no i'd be i'd be interested to hear what you think and uh, yeah absolutely like as i said i didn't like i when it first started i'd say it took me sort of 20 minutes half an hour to really to really get hooked into it um 
um, probably longer than I thought it would. So I would say stick with it. Um, but it, it absolutely rewards your time. And again, I think once you, if when I come to watch it again, I think it will certainly reward multiple viewings. But yeah, it's no, it's an incredible piece of work. Um, and one of my favourite of the year so far. Yeah, really, really good film. Um, not one of my favourite of last year is my next uh, or first popcorn review, I should say, for this week. And that is the um, latest incarnation of Child's Play. Uh, this one directed by a man called Lars Klevberg and starring Aubrey Plaza as a slightly um, unbelievable uh, incarnation of a young mother, I, I would, I would uh, state here, early doors. Um, yeah, Child's Play, I don't go in with huge expectations because I have very faint memories of the original. I didn't watch the sequels and I'm not really on that particular bandwagon, so I wasn't going into this this viewing of this movie. Um, it does some stuff fine. I mean, a lot of the movie I would describe as fine. It is a functional, kind of um, bloody at times, gory at times, uh, horror product <laughs> that that happens. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of um, the Miley Cyrus episode of Black Mirror in the last series, uh, in terms of having a doll that then uh, takes on the kind of um, slightly sinister properties and obviously it's this kind of uh, ominous warning to the dangers inherent in the uh, internet of things and you know connected devices and how we can update child's play because we make the doll itself interconnected via the internet to all manner of smart TVs and devices and so on and so forth and the, the, the team here have a good time with that there's some stuff that's sort of shot from the doll's perspective which I enjoyed from inside a closet at one point there's quite a lot of um, sort of nudges and references in the directions of other horror movies that you'll pick out if you're a horror fan and I appreciate that kind of stuff uh, some cool killings so you've got to give it that but just overall it had a feeling of being just very average to me um, and the doll itself is just difficult to look at and I know <laughs> that that's not necessarily a problem because it's a horror movie but I just I just wanted it to be killed um, and then <laughs> Last point uh, before, because I want to get your thoughts. You've already talked about this movie, I think, Paul. Uh, the kid in this was very distracting because he looks exactly like Elliot from E.T. <laughs> I hadn't to, thought of that until ex- just now, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to the extent that I looked it up and I was like putting the photos side by side, checking out. Honestly, it's uncanny. Um, but yeah, Aubrey Plaza's performance, I'm not sure about in this movie. And I'm to be honest with you, I'm not sure about Aubrey Plaza as a dramatic actress. I know this is a genre film. I know it's a horror film. But when she has to do domestic drama stuff not so much uh, as a comedy actress great uh, I, I don't know man I didn't didn't go for it I'm not here to give it a kicking necessarily I just thought it was is all right what am I missing no I, I pretty much agree with you I think at the time I my expectations were so low and I came out of it thinking actually that was that was a decent that was a decent stab no pun intended uh, at, at rebooting the rebooting the series and doing something a bit different with it um Unlike you, I have seen the original and all the sequels, so I do have something of a fondness for the series. The original Child's Play, for me actually, is one of is one of my favourite horror films. I think it's a it's a really underrated piece of work, and it's genuinely it's creepy as fuck in places, and still and still is quite effective. But they, they've all basically disowned they they've all basically distanced themselves from this movie as well, haven't they? They the have too. the original team have distanced themselves from this movie and are doing a TV series. I think um, somehow they've, they've some someone's got 
somehow everyone's got rights somewhere to to make some some form of child's play thing. So yeah, they have distanced itself from it. Yeah, to be honest, I think when I when I came out of the cinema, I I'm kind of with you. I, I enjoyed it at the time. I, I quite like some of the grisly set pieces, as you said. I thought the film was fun. Um, that being said, like that you've bought the film up now. It's the first time I've thought about it since I watched it at the cinema and I haven't even thought to check, oh, when's it out on Blu-ray? Can I rent this? Hasn't crossed my radar or crossed my mind at all. So there we go. Maybe that maybe that tells you all you need to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be just one of those though, right? Where when you're confined to a cinema and that's all you've got in front of you, you can really wring every last drop of yeah. you know enjoyment and quality out of it. Whereas watching it at home... I guess I was more aware of like, you know, there are other things in my house yeah. that I could do <laughs> instead of watching the rest of this movie. But um, yeah, it's not bad, man. And like I say, uh, the little kid who looks like Elliot, he's pretty good. Um, and the bit where, you know, su some character gets horrendously mangled in, you know, a few different ways at certain different points in this movie. I'm all for that stuff. I just wish that I cared more about any of it mm. as it was going along because it just kind of, I kind of shrugged, um, I guess, as my review of this movie. Uh, what else have you got this week, Paul? Um, so, yeah, another one I've watched uh, this week was The Call of the Wild. This is the um, Chris Sanders-directed um, Disney release that I think kind of sadly has been a bit of a flop for Disney. Um, the po From the posters, this stars... Well, not from the posters, this does star um, Harrison Ford and a plucky uh, but badly behaved CGI canine called Buck um, alongside Omar Sy, who is one of the standouts here, I think. Uh, Dan Stevens appears in this. Karen Gillan turns up in this. There's a lot of quite of surprise faces in this. Um, this is an adaptation of, I think, of a very beloved and, and quite old novel called, I believe, called The Call of the Wild. I may be mistaken. Um, basically, it tells the story of a dog um, who is kidnapped from his original sort of his original um what's the word i'm looking for here um privileged lifestyle ha privileged oh, okay. happy lifestyle uh kidnapped taken up north and kind of sold sold into being a working dog um starts to dog starts to carry a dog sled across the yukon uh in alaska and uh fills the call of the wild peach shall we say more and more um as he has adventures with various characters that he meets one of those characters being harrison ford but despite what the poster is trying to tell you harrison ford is not the star here um and is not in the film anywhere as near as much as you might think he is until i'd say the final third um the star of the film is very much the the plucky cgi dog who on his own is quite a charming cgi creation um the problem comes is when you put a quite effective cgi against live action and it still doesn't blend quite well enough so it's quite distracting i can't help but think there's certain scenes they could have used the CGI dog for. A lot of this could be done with an actual dog, and you've had you'd have had a, a slightly more effective film. Um, that gripe about the effects aside, I quite enjoyed this. I have to say, like I, I didn't have any expectations at all going into it, and it, it it's a it's a pacey adventure. It blitzes along. It blitzes along um, as fast as dogs can carry the sled. Um, there's some very there's a very exciting avalanche scene that I reckon everyone should check out. Um, Harrison Ford is putting putting his heart into this he's good in this Omar Sy in a supporting character is the guy who drives the dog sled is really good in this um yeah it, you know it's not going to win any awards it's not going to change your life uh but if you if you've got especially if you've got kids like check this one out it's I had I had fun with it it, it was all right it was all right 
<laughs> I, I can't be my I can't be my authentic self and not say, my God, I can tell when you've written some of your lines. Because when you say it whips along as fast as dogs can pull a sled, yeah. what where is that so oh I see. It's something that you've pre it's a pre-written. It's not come off the dome. If we were battle rapping, I'd disqualify you, Paul. Right. But um I, those, the, are, those are my words in a review I wrote. No, 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 no. I know, I know they're your words. It it was just like it reminds me of uh, you know, when um, was that Harrison Ford who said about George Lucas you can write this shit but you sure yeah. as hell can't say it about the scripting of uh, Star Wars um, I think I've got that on the mind because Mark Hamill was uh, was in my Chucky movie right, that I didn't okay. really care oh, about yeah, he voiced, just, he voiced just Chucky didn't he yeah he did indeed. Yeah. Yes. Uh, although now, if I read anything off at Written's, then you're very much entitled to call me out immediately. That's fine. Um, That's fine. <laughs> what What I've got, though, on my side, Paul, is the art of self-defense. Uh, my second popcorn movie for this week is that movie. Uh, this is the second feature from a director called Riley Stearns, who is a Texan director who was previously married to Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She was the star of his first movie, which was this movie called I talked about it on the show. It's this kind of weird um, indie about a guy who is uh, at a kind of touring conference of sorts, trying to make it as a businessman, but then um, needs to give a psychological assessment of a person uh, using skills that he may or may not have. It's very weird. It's very out there. And so I was interested to see what Riley Stearns did next. One of the things he did next is went through a divorce. But the other thing that he's done next is this. Uh, and this is Jesse Eisenberg in something like that movie, The Foot Fist Way. Mm, okay. That's you, interesting. You know That's that movie, right? Movie, so, yeah. So we've got um, Jesse Eisenberg here as a uh, sort of glum, down in the dumps, loner of a guy. He lives on his own with his dog, I think. He has a, a pet with him at all times when he's when he's home alone. Um, and he, one night, goes out to get some food for his dog and gets viciously attacked by some um, motorcycle-helmeted thugs who leave him in a state on the ground. And he realises that what he needs to do is learn self-defense. So he finds a dojo, he finds a sensei. That sensei is played by Alessandro Nivola, who uh, people like me will know from the Goal series of uh, fictional <laughs> football movies that came out some time ago. Uh, but yes, he is this weird sensei, not unlike the Danny McBride character in the Foot Fist way, who is 100% serious about the art of self-defense. In his class is a standout student played by Imogen Poots. Um, she is the one that everybody else aspires to be like. And within the group, there's this sort of mythical element to the idea of being able to come or be invited to come to the training that happens at night. Okay. Because the training that happens at night is some other level of fight club shit uh, that you can only get to if you're so honored by your sensei. Um, it's weird, it's kooky, it's kind of downbeat at times. There are laughs, but Riley Stearns isn't really a guy for like broad humour so much as he's a guy for kind of discomfort and sort of twitchy material. And that suits Jesse Eisenberg. So I think it's really well cast. 
Um, yeah, standing out, the largest word on the poster or the blurb is the word offbeat. And I don't like that because that's thrown about all over so many movie posters and blurbs. But in this case, it's entirely apposite for this movie. So, yeah, a weird one. Um, again, another massive cliche. It's not going to be for everyone. But if you like Eisenberg in the kind of role that suits his particular set of skills... I think you might get something out of this. And this director's one to watch, man. Like, he's all of 33 or something now. So um, he's going to go on to good things, I reckon. That's The Art of Self-Defense, my second one. Have you got another one? I do, yeah. There's one more I want to talk about. Uh, This is The Host from 2006, directed by Bong Joon-ho. I haven't seen this probably since 2007 when it came out. And I'll be honest, I'd forgotten quite how good this one is. Um, My only real criticism is that the CGI doesn't stand up very well, unfortunately. I know it was done on a budget at the time. And I was reading something in Sight and Sound this month about the fact that actually Bong Joon-ho wasn't happy with a lot of the CG work. He wasn't happy with a lot of it had to be cut. I think the cost spiralled out of control and I think he lost control of a lot of it. It's it's kind of of how I, I, I read into that. That aside, though, it's... Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Bong Joon-ho is such an incredible filmmaker. Like, anything he turns his hand to is just fantastic. Um, as, as one might expect, it's not just a monster movie. Um, it felt, it felt dis- weirdly, you talk about... We were talking... We joked earlier about doing top five pandemic movies. The host should come up because there's... There's so much. There's so much in this about misinformation. There's so much. There's so much politics in this about how the South Koreans don't necessarily trust the Americans. There's just so much more to this than than meets the eye originally, and it works on both levels. A as an entertaining monster film, and B as just this incredibly insightful um, satirical piece, like skewering the politics of South Korea at the time. Like Bong Joon Ho is yeah, he's a he's a master filmmaker, and if you haven't seen this, it's one of his earlier works. Um, yeah, find it, check it out. It's great. Yeah, I mean the the South Koreans' feelings towards the Americans when the whole monster uh, calamity is brought about yeah. by an American scientist bunging a load of chemicals Bring into the river. Hide into the river. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Subtle, um, subtle. <laughs> claim to fame, my ex girlfriend ex-boyfriend gets killed by the monster in that movie oh wow so, okay um, I like that. you know six degrees or something <laughs> yeah. i'm doing this a new feature now i've got six degrees to Tallulah riley last week yeah. and uh, six degrees to bong <laughs> joon ho this week uh so there's that but yeah no totally with you man it's fantastic it's one of the reasons i moved to to south korea actually which is something that i've not mentioned but i actually spent a bit of time in south <laughs> korea in the past um, so yeah it's it's fucking great and if you haven't seen it watch it I think you've read the same piece as me in Sight and Sound perhaps when um, Bong was uh, mentioning the fact that he um, when he made uh, Barking Dogs Never Bite is that the first yeah. the first movie that he yeah. made which I haven't no, seen I've, seen I've got to be either, yeah. completely honest I haven't seen it and he absolutely bombed um, and then it was only after some um, people saw potential in mm. him that he even got to make another movie, which, of course, was Memories of Murder, which then established him as this this force. So uh, thank goodness for people who have faith in uh, in filmmakers, really. Yes, and thank goodness for Bong Joon-ho, I'll be honest, because he's incredible. I've said that already in the podcast. I'll do it again. I'll say it in many other shows. Absolutely one of my favourite directors working today. But he doesn't have a film out this week, unfortunately. Uh, But some other people do. And after this, we will let you know what is coming up in coming attractions. So... 
upcoming attractions for this week, uh, we've kind of um, jumped the gun a little bit, haven't we, Paul? Because last week we did our preview for Onward, the Pixar movie, which actually doesn't drop in the UK until this weekend, but was previewed last week and last weekend. So apologies for that. But if you've had the chance to see it already, I'm sure you appreciated that, uh, you know, having a heads up on the show. Uh, we'll get to this week's releases, though, the first of which is Military Wives. This one from... Uh, director Peter Cataneo, uh, starring Kristen Scott Thomas and Sharon Horgan, amongst others. Sharon Horgan, of course, from uh, Catastrophe and Kristen Scott Thomas from all manner of both English and French language movies. Uh, what do I know about this one? Uh, I'm going to read this part, Paul, so I'm calling myself out. <laughs> uh, with their partners away serving in Afghanistan, a group of women on the home front form a choir and quickly find themselves at the centre of a media sensation and global movement. I believe this might be based on a true story, uh, but I may be completely I, I, pulling that out. I don't know. I don't know. I know it's is it directed by the writer of The Full Monty or directed by the director of The Full Monty. Um, it could yeah, be. It seems like it seems like they've just repurposed that story and put it into another setting, but we shall see. We shall see. Um yeah, hard pass, I think, for me on this one. It's just, it doesn't look like my kind of thing. It looks very, 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 very twee. Um, there's some talented people in it. It's just the trailer just brought a bit of sick to my throat, um, and I'm, I'm not keen. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, I really, really like Kristen Scott Thomas and Sharon yeah, I'm Horgan. I'm totally on board but, with you. Totally on board. But we had, uh, we had preview tickets for this. And when I told my wife, oh, we're going to uh, we're going to see the, the preview film. Went, what is it? Oh, it's, it's Military Wives. And she just sort of did a face. She just did a face. And I realised I also felt the same way as that face, which was like, I have no burning desire to see this movie. So <laughs> we may well catch up with it in due course on sort of a quiet Sunday afternoon. But for now, maybe we'll give it a miss. It might not feature next week. Sorry, Military Wives fans. We'll get round to it in popcorn movies at some point, I'm sure. The next one, um, sort of tagging on to one of the features from today, The Invisible Man, is Fantasy Island. And I say that because this, I believe, has been sort of semi-rebranded as, as Bloom Houses. Well, it looks that way because I was looking to book tickets for this because this apparently is supposed to be so bad it's funny in places, which might be why on the Odeon app it certainly is called Bloom Houses Fantasy Island. So um, Jason Bloomhouse is a producer that overestimates the value of his own name. There's no doubt in my mind that he does that on a regular basis. So yeah, Bloom Houses Fantasy Island. What's the concept of this one, Pete? So this... I am reliably informed by the IMDb is a horror adaptation of the popular 70s TV show about a magical island resort. Now, both of your hosts, you guys, are far, far too young and fresh faced to remember 1970s TV shows. So I have no knowledge of a show called Fantasy Island. Do you? No, not, not, not a bit. I'll tell you what I do have knowledge of, though, Paul. The fact that this currently holds a 21 Metascore, oh. which is woof, pretty damning. I mean, we got people here. We've got uh, Michael Peña's here. He'll take a check. We've got uh, Maggie Q. We've got uh, Lucy Hale, who's not too bad in places. Uh, yeah, doesn't look promising, though, does it? Oh, Michael Rooker. He loves a check. Yeah, uh, he's, he's here. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you guys other than... Um, 
maybe maybe steer clear of this particular fancy island or don't. I mean, I'm because as you said, Paul, so I'm going to this one. I'm 100 signed up for this. This is this is exactly the kind of film that I like. Is the wrong word? This is that the kind of film that I like to subject myself to, shall we say? <laughs> be be honest, Paul. You're going to have this and its subsequent three or four sequels in some kind of box set in about five yeah, years' time, likely, yeah. sitting on your shelf. Yeah, called Bloomhouse. Uh, Bloomhouse's flops or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's hope that it is so bad it's funny, because then we'll talk about it on the show. If not, we might not bother. Uh, we've got one more for this week, which is Escape from Pretoria. This one seems to be one of the sort of five or six films per year now that stars Harry Potter himself, Daniel Radcliffe. This from a director called uh, writer director, I should say, called Francis and Nan. Um, I don't know a lot about it. Based on the real life prison break of two political captives. Escape from Pretoria is a race against time thriller set in the tumultuous apartheid days of South Africa. I have a feeling this might be Daniel Radcliffe doing an accent and some proper acting. Um, Thoughts? Yeah, I thought the trailer, I don't think the trailer was particularly well cut together when I watched it, to be honest. And I think it's it's difficult because my anticipation for a film can be, well, it's, it's that's the whole point of a trailer, I guess, can be that sort of either sinks or floats based on the quality of the trailer. And I just don't think the trailer made this look great. Um, Daniel Radcliffe's an actor that I like, and I like the fact he's mixing up his projects. He's doing a few different bits and pieces, which is all good. So I'd, I'd happily give this a go. How easy it will be to watch, I don't know um, whether it gets released. I think actually it might be coming on Curve on actually which always makes life a bit easier uh but yeah I'm, I'm totally on board for giving this a go i like i like daniel Radcliffe. he seems like a really nice guy uh, and more power to him so no the other the other side of the coin from me fuck this movie it has the worst film poster of the year hands down this looks like a ufc fight <laughs> promo poster where they just take two completely different images and then push them together with a vertical line running down the middle have you seen it i'm, look, I'm just looking at it now so keep keep, Dude, keep the guys the entertained <laughs> check the poster it is atrocious oh, it looks like a joke break out yeah, before man, the, it breaks you pow yeah this <laughs> this looks bad yeah i feel like this might run fantasy island close for worst movie that we're previewing this week <laughs> but um but we'll see yeah uh, the rest of the show is going to be unflinchingly positive though because we've got great stuff to get our uh, teeth into but yeah i don't know about this at all i think this is one of those that radcliffe as you say is kind of dipping his toe into a few pools and maybe this pool's full of shit because it does <laughs> not look does not look good but anyway that's coming attractions out the way for this week which means we can get into the meat of the show i can't wait to our feature uh, reviews next week now so we've got potentially fantasy blumhouse's fantasy island and maybe oh onward we'll definitely do onward there we, we can go. do onward. there's going to be some yeah. positivity in onward there you go we'll do onward yeah. and fantasy island that's i have spoken <laughs> perfect perfect well uh this is a perfect time for us to duck out we'll be back with two feature reviews the first of which will be the invisible man right after this So yeah, welcome to the, I guess the the meat in the sandwich of the show, shall we say, or sandwich filling in the s- sandwich of the show. I don't know where I've got this sandwich analogy from. I'm going to bin it off very very quickly, uh, so we can start talking about the Invisible Man. Um, yeah, so to still I'm I'm going to try and set this one up, Pete. And do you know how I'm going to do it? I'm just going to read the synopsis from IMDb because sometimes they're quite good at it. Um, when Cecilia's abusive ex, Cecilia is played here by Elizabeth Moss. Uh, Cecilia's abusive ex takes his own life and leaves her his fortune. She suspects his death was a hoax after 
after a series of coincidences, uh, coincidences turn lethal, Cecilia works out a way to prove that she is being hunted by someone nobody can see. That nobody, the person that nobody can see, could in fact be the invisible man that this film is named after. Um, Pete, anything to add to that setup? Or? Yeah, just that, I mean, we're dropped into what seems to be a pretty serious, self-serious um movie in which we're at the center uh, from the opening sequence of a horribly frosty domestic relationship and a woman in Moss's character who's just trying to escape from this guy who the synopsis gives away is not going to be around for too long um, and it's incredibly gripping from the outset and we should say here this film is directed by a co-creator of Saw himself Lee Winnell, who, of course, um, you mentioned on last week's show, Paul, his last outing as a director was Upgrade, the kind of futurist thriller from, what, a couple of years ago now, a year and a half ago, maybe. So uh, we're interesting and sort of a fertile territory, I think, for, for discussion on this one. But before we get into our full thoughts, let's hear a little clip. You know what I think we need? I think we get kicked out out and have a little girls' night, eat some cake. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 James, I did not do that. Sydney, I would never hit you. I love you. I would never do that, James. It was him. He's here, I no, swear to you. Enough. <laughs> See, enough. Just stop it. Are you okay? I don't want to stay, Sydney. I'm sorry. I would never. Hey, hey. See? Right now, my priority is getting my baby somewhere safe. Do you understand? Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned before the clip about the fact that we we kind of we launched immediately into this kind of this horrible uh, controlling um, domestic domestic relationship. Um, Elizabeth Moss's character is certainly subject to some abuse. Um, certainly with yeah, like gaslighting for want of well, gaslighting would be would certainly be the appropriate description here. And I think that is kind of an interesting jumping off point, and that I think gives the is probably the stronger the stronger parts of this film. I I like the fact that. Lee Winnell's done this I like the fact he's kind of he's tailored what could have been what previously in the past has been potentially quite sort of kooky silly uh popcorn sort of fodder material um and tied it into this for the most part like I think quite quite cleverly put together um kind of domestic abuse drama with Elizabeth Moss doing what Elizabeth Moss just met does best which is just acting incredibly in this any thoughts or yeah I mean because it the movie actually opens it's funny it's a funny movie not funny haha but funny strange because mm. we get the Bloomhouse ident at the beginning which those of us who frequent the cinema you know as we do will recognize as like I'm here for the horror show now. Yeah. You know, when you see that chair spinning in the air and, you know, that ident, you know the kind of movie that you've gone to. And generally it means it's going to be a good time, but it might be a kind of low rent or not particularly serious uh, offering. And then the movie gives us titles in a kind of effective but also kitschy way they're introduced by waves crashing against the shore and then the water washes down through the titles themselves which is weirdly familiar with what they are familiar to people who see who saw the movie i should say baywatch and so you're kind of caught between like this is sort of eerie and effective and also seems a bit cheap and weird and then you get 
that really effective opening sequence. There's no setup. That none of the domestic abuse stuff is shown up front. No. We should be clear, right? What we've got instead is here's a situation, two people are side by side in bed, one of them wants to get out, but she's being very careful not to wake the other, and the audience is left to put this together and realise she's trying to escape, and it's suddenly incredibly tense, because any noise, any dropped item, any crash or bang, is gonna unleash something that we know is not good, and everything else is left to your imagination. I thought, this is work beyond what I, I would expect from a Lee Winnell. Not that I don't have time for the guy, because I think he does really effective genre stuff. But here it felt like it, it's a director maturing. It's a director sort of taking risks and being bold in a way that I haven't necessarily seen from him in the past. As much as he's done sort of creepy scares and, you know, ghost housey stuff before, this felt more grown up um, from its outset. How did, how did you feel from that? Point of view, yeah, no, I, I, I 100% agree with you. It, it surprised me, as I said, that the approach taken to this was was a pleasant surprise for me. Um, and yeah, I think, it, and also, I think, like, considering considering the work he's done in the past, he's on screenplay duties here as well. Um, that we should probably mention, or we should definitely mention. Um, considering the work he's done in the past, I thought he, he handled, um, he handled Elizabeth Moss character with, with a real deft of hand that I didn't really expect, I didn't know he was capable of, to be honest. And I think, okay, you can attribute part of that down to Elizabeth Moss, as I mentioned before, just being an absolutely superb actress. But, like, I, I totally bought into her character, I totally bought into her fear of, of what this guy's capable of, and I totally bought that she'd come out of this horribly abusive relationship. And, like, the, the kind of, for most of the first half of the film, I I was just like what am I watching here like this is not what I signed up for but I'm into this this is a good film like this is not mm. a Bloomhouse, as you say not a Bloomhouse film like and I, I was 100% on board with it and I was just like okay I really like the approach they've taken here this is something quite different this is a bold move with a with, yeah. a, with an established horror property this is a very bold move it's exactly that's exactly right and I mean I, I sort of had in the back of my mind as it progressed as she gets out of the house and sort of tries to have some kind of a life and lives in constant fear that he will come back. It reminded me a bit of um, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene in the sense of the thing behind you maybe always being behind you. And is that thing actually a person or is it your own psychological trauma that's going to hunt you for the rest of your life even something like the grudge the the nick pesci one that we reviewed yeah. not long ago and obviously the it's a remake of an older property but like those kinds of movies are absolutely in my wheelhouse the the sort of Am ambiguity of the situation being is this a real physical tangible threat or is it the more powerful threat possibly of your own mind turning against you and that, Paul, I think, is both to the movie's great um, benefit and also creates later in the movie what I see to be its biggest issue. Yes. Um, maybe before we get there, though, maybe before we get into that stuff, we should say, so Moss's character goes into sort of protected living. Would we call that protected living? I don't know. But yeah, I suppose lives with a friend, we lives with a friend who has got a physique that you wouldn't fuck with. We'll put it, we'll put it that way. <laughs> the, the the most ripped man alive. Yeah, uh the actor is called uh, Aldis Hodge, but yeah, he looks like the kind of guy, it doesn't matter if the man's uh, visible or invisible, he's not going to get through this absolute unit. And so <laughs> it seems as though Moss's kind of take Moss's character Cecilia as you mentioned in the intro is taking kind of baby steps to get back into the world to reconnect with society 
And then comes that news, and I'm not spoiling anything because it was in the synopsis, that the man that she escaped from has died. And so now you can exhale, exhale, I should say, you can breathe a sigh of relief, you can go on with your life. But she doesn't feel that way. She doesn't feel like he's gone. And again, this comes back to that ambiguity and feeling like, is she just cracking up? Or is there some reason to be fearful? Um, what about this sort of new family dynamic? What about the other performances between uh, Aldis Hodge, Storm Reed, who was in A Wrinkle of Time, which we didn't like very much, but here plays the daughter, who I think is really good, uh, quite a strong performance in that little new family. And then, of course, her friend, who tries to support her until that becomes impossible. Those performances, did they work for you? Did they add much to the movie? Uh, yeah, I think I think they, they worked well enough for me. I don't, yeah, I yeah in in short i think they did i think they did work I, I quite like i quite like the supporting performances here i think they were kind of brushed under the carpet a little bit by some of the more outlandish events that we'll get to we'll get to in a bit so maybe we could have spent some more time with with some of these characters and maybe those some of those relationships could have been could have been developed further um but i guess with with the kind of the not not i guess in some ways the left turn the film takes kind of through, uh, just about over halfway through there isn't as much time to spend with these characters as you may have liked do you, do you agree or yeah i mean to a certain extent i i guess there's a real penny drop thing quite early i would imagine for a lot of people which is the um work that the man that moss was uh, married to or her partner the work that he did um, and I won't mention it directly now because I don't want to sort of spoil things ahead of time. But I think once you're aware that he was an entrepreneur in a particular field, you kind of see where this could be going. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say. And when it does get to where it's going, I think. So what I will say is I really like I. So when the film takes a slightly sillier turn for sci-fi, shall we say, which I mean, it's called The Invisible Man. You're going to have a clue where this is going. It's pretty heavily signposted where it's going. When the film takes, a, a for me, a, a silly sci-fi turn and The Invisible Man does appear uh, without spoiling too much, there are some incredibly exciting set pieces and i think the the way the invisible man affects our handle i think they're great i think the film looks great i think some of the fight scenes are genuinely exciting like it harks back to some of the more violent darker scenes of upgrade which is a film that i, I absolutely love i talked about that last week and i think those scenes are very very strong and i think the scenes in the, the more muted kind of domestic abuse kind of character driven scenes of the first half of the film are very very strong I just don't know if they gel together as one film. It almost feels like we're watching bits of two films here. Thoughts, Pete? Yeah, I, I basically line up with that, I think. Um, I, As I was saying, like I sort of was reveling in this ambiguity that Elizabeth Moss played with so well in her performance in the sense that you could believe both things. You could mm. believe that there was really an invisible man that was out to get her. Or, or you could also believe that that was all entirely in her own head. She was falling to bits and you could sort of go down the rabbit hole with her there. And I guess when the film has to play its hand and it goes kind of futurist sci-fi thrillery thing, as much as I agree with you that some, maybe for me, not all, but some of those action set pieces work well and did remind me very much of uh, what Lee Winnell did with Upgrade, there was also sort of a sense of disappointment where I thought like, I, I wish we were still back in that place where we didn't know, you know? Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I... 
I guess because I'd been sold such an effective um, domestic abuse and recovery narrative, then it felt a bit cheapened by the end um, when it all goes a bit daft. As much as I respect that this was going to go somewhere like that in the end, I'm with you to the extent that, like you say, I, I don't know that the two halves managed to ever quite lock together in a satisfying no, I'm way totally with you as i said it's not that it's not that one's better than the other i don't think i said i'm probably fonder of the action scenes from the sound of it than you were but I just yeah just it just felt i mean it's it's a bold it's a bold attempt like i've got as i said i've always i'd always rather people swing and miss than not take that swing at all um and it, it's a bold effort to try and join these two together i just don't think i think as a sum of its parts it doesn't quite doesn't quite come together quite as well as I would have hoped. I enjoyed it. I think it's a good film. I just, it had potential to be a great one. Yeah. And I mean, second half wise, um, and Invisible Man wise, I guess I also had an issue with just, again, it's all in the context of the first half of the movie, but like just how many liberties it took with the actual physical possibilities of the world. Yeah. Because at times it was just like, I'm supposed to suspend disbelief about what is happening right now, but I'm finding that really hard. And I would say that there is a specific sort of cutoff point for me, uh, <laughs> pardon the pun, um, and it's the restaurant sequence, which is great. Yeah. The yeah. restaurant <laughs> sequence is all I'll say about it, but it's fantastic. And I think the stuff that came before that, I really, really enjoyed. And some of the stuff that comes after that, I enjoy, but on a kind of slightly different level. Mm. Um, and it's not to say one is sort of higher or lower or, or sort of be um, pejorative about the second half or the last third. But yeah, I, I wanted to love this movie a lot more than I ended up liking it. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I would say I I liked it, but didn't love it, but wanted to love it. I'm to totally with you. Um, it's certainly it as I said, all credit to Lee Winnell for trying something different with this, and like the fact the fact that the first half exists in a in a pretty commercial um, sort of horror property is all power to him for it. I just yeah, it didn't gel quite as well as I'd hoped it would. Can can we have like maybe an Elizabeth Moss movie where she has a lovely time though? Because that would be nice. Between, yeah. <laughs> yeah, between, yeah, between like Tale. Ha Handmaid's yeah. Tale <laughs> ongoing, this, uh, what her smell last year, uh, Queen of Earth with both Alex Ross Perry movies, which are rough and lots of shouting and crying. I mean, yeah, I'd I'd like to see her be to be happy, um, but she's so good at this this kind of work as well. Yeah, in fairness, so yeah, not not a, yeah. Um, solid, but could have been better for me, I guess. I don't know why I've said that. We're not rating things, but yeah, it was solid. Um, oh, I'll give it a seven. Uh, <laughs> no, <right>. there's, <laughs> there's no ratings on this show. Uh, what there is, though, is a second feature of you, and that feature is Dark Waters from director Todd Haynes, and we'll get to that right after this. So next up, our second feature review of the week. This is Todd Haynes' latest film, uh, Dark Water, starring Mark Ruffalo. Uh, Pete, set this one up for us. Yeah, so this one tells the story of a corporate defence attorney who takes on an environmental lawsuit against kind of all the odds, um, being that he is a corporate defence attorney, after all, used to defending big business. He takes on this case because it is revealed to him by a local farmer that 
DuPont Corporation may be, nay, are poisoning the local water supply. And this is having a damaging effect on first and foremost the cattle in the local area belonging to that farmer, and then on the wider community and perhaps really extrapolating things out to the whole of America um, at the time at which the thing develops. The story is told over a number of years as this man doggedly goes in search of the truth and he's based on a true story. Mark Ruffalo, we've seen with this kind of man on a mission, man on a campaign uh, territory or material before in Spotlight, for example. Uh, the poster for the movie is Mark Ruffalo looking serious sitting in a sedan and it gives you an idea of maybe the sort of movie that you're going into. But before we go into our thoughts, uh, here's a little clip. They can't go back on everything. Well, they're a titan of industry. I mean, they can do whatever the hell they want. Nothing else matters. They can fight you all they want. It doesn't take away from what you've done. Of course it does. That's exactly what it does. They want to show the world it's no use fighting. Look, everybody, even he can't crack the maze, and he's helped build it. The system is rigged. They want us to think it'll protect us, but that's a lie. We protect us. We do. Nobody else. Not the companies, not, not, the, not the scientists, not the government. Us. So yeah, uh, Mark Ruffalo looking serious sitting in a sedan. I, I like that. Um, and that basically could could be the review of the film. Um, and you wouldn't be too far off the mark in, in, in kind of knowing what you're getting here. Um, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. Certainly on the comparisons to Spotlight, it, you know, it's not beyond Mark Ruffalo to, to deal with a, a worthy subject like this. Um, Todd Haynes as the director drew me to this project, I, I have to say. Um, you were talking about Safe, I think, I think beforehand. Um the way you mentioned sort of Mark Ruffalo sitting in a sedan looking serious, is that a positive or a negative? I've got to ask. That's where we'll start. <laughs> well, I think that's the sort of, it's an area of ambiguity that I was going for. I mean, I mean, because the reason I say it's such an appropriate image, because this man is in a functional car with a sort of functional haircut looking functionally serious. And the movie feels that way. I mean, the case itself is compelling. Any time that you hear of a true case from history in which big business threatened the lives of the people, you want to know more. You want to hear about the investigation. You want to see it unravel. And you get that. You get it served up to you on a plate. But maybe the food that you're eating isn't particularly exciting um, at, at all times. As much as Todd Haynes, I think, handles the material very capably, it's all got this kind of washed out look. Um, it's almost as if the film is getting tired and sick with its protagonist, which I think is actually to the credit of the director matching sort of form and uh, function here. And it reminded me again of the movie that you mentioned, Safe, in the sense that Haynes did such a good uh, job with that movie of creating atmosphere and the atmosphere is sort of bleak and dreary and drained and he does a sort of similar thing although with a lot more polish here for Dark Waters. I want to say as well Paul and then throw it back to you that particularly important I think to the overall in my mind success of this as a piece of drama is the performance of Bill Camp uh, who plays the local farmer who's cattle are getting sick and dying and then being buried en masse in a field because that performance uh, really really drew me and he's an actor that I like quite a lot Bill Camp as a sort of one of those guys you know you recognize him and you don't yeah. always remember what his name is uh, yeah he's really really strong here uh, and I think that he's a good foil for Ruffalo that at who at times I think can become a little dreary 
perhaps, as much as he is often straining for uh, the, the sort of meat of the performance. I think this is a better performance than the performance he gave in Spotlight. Um, maybe that one felt at times a little bit uh, scenery chewing and a little bit overblown. Mm. And I think he's dialed it back here and it's to the benefit of the film. But I mean, performances wise and, and the film at large wise, Paul, jump in. I mean, what, what are your thoughts going in? I think, I think like the more I kind of, I remember sort of, I haven't settled on review of this yet because I've got I still yet to write a review of this. So that this this will probably form my opinions more solidly. I think. I think for for me, like, yeah, I think the first half of this I thought was great. Um, I re I thought it had a, I thought it had a decent pace to it. Films like this sometimes can can be a little bit plodding in places, and there's there is a fine balance to show how much of the detail of this case that took over years and years and years do you go into to keep the film entertaining. And at, at some point, at some point, if you go into too much detail, you could potentially bog the film down. And I like the fact that this jumped through the years fairly quickly in the first half. Um, now, whether or not, as you mentioned, it was intentional that as the kind of the case got more bogged down um, for Mark Ruffalo's character and the years went by, for me, the pace of the film really, really slowed down in the second half and and the film started to drag for me in, in parts. And that, I think, is a real shame because it, it's certainly an engaging subject. Mark Ruffalo, as you say, I think this is, this is one of the best performances I've seen him give. Like, it, it's it's it's... It's a, again, it's it's a good film, but not quite a great one. I think it's just a shame the pace slows down in the second half because for the first half I was fully on board with this and I was I was I was quite into this. I'll be honest. Quite yeah, it, it feels like, and I don't have this as a sort of gospel, but it feels like a movie that's been pushed because this is exactly the kind of film you release for your consideration around Oscar season, yeah. surely. And it feels like people have lost faith in its possibility of actually garnering those awards. And I think. Without wanting to 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 sort of um, criticise the movie heavily in any way, because it, like I say, it's perfectly functional. I think it's a good film, uh, like you said, but not not maybe a great one. Uh, it does feel maybe like the right decision to avoid uh, awards consideration for Dark Waters because it does just feel like it it falls a little bit short. I mean, there are other things for me. Uh, Anne Hathaway is cast as a sort of overly recognisable wife to the Ruffalo character. And that sounds like uh, nitpicking, but I sometimes feel as though those... Ro like, the story here is a human story and the focus should be on that human story and on the, the, the factual information related to the case. And then, of course, bringing that to life in the best way that you can, um, you know, in a couple of hours of screen time. And sometimes I feel like when a partner, for example is cast uh, with uh, an actress or actor who is overly well known, it can just act as a distraction. And I felt that way about Anne Hathaway here. She's fine. The performance is fine. But I, I'm not sure why we need Anne Hathaway in that role. I mean, all power to her. She should take every role that she can get when the work's interesting. And this, cer this certainly is interesting work. But um, yeah, I mean, Tim, Tim Robbins is in the movie and maybe um, Tim Robbins is a little bit better at blending into the background. So that didn't bother me so much. But... I don't know. I don't know. Did that you remember Anne Hathaway being in the movie? Did it bother you at the time? Yeah, I mean, I just yeah, it's kind of like to for, to me, it's it's she's better than she's better than these kind of roles. This is kind of this is probably you know this is one of the film's weaker elements. Is just like the wife character again. This is like is is I suppose the wife character needs to be there, but doesn't need to be massively well written for. But at the same time, then why have we got Anne Hathaway here? I see where you're coming from. She's she's a big name that is going to be a distraction that is incredibly recognisable. And yeah, I don't. It's yeah, it's a bizarre role for her to take. To be honest, I don't think it, this needed to be this needed to be a big star in the slightest. But but, um, but then I don't. But then I see it the other way. Like I don't think it's a bizarre role for her to take. I think hmm. it's exactly the kind of you know 
uh, whole grain bread with seeds or whatever that she wants in her diet. It's the kind of worthy material that shows her to be, you know, a, a real um, serious actor, which she clearly and undoubtedly is. But I put more blame here on the casting director as much as I can totally see that there is pull to putting Anne Hathaway's name mm. on your poster when you've got a sort of prestige cast in a few other positions as well. So, yeah, I don't know. We're not going to get away from these kinds of castings. I just think it's a bit of a shame. Yeah, no, I, I, I see where you're coming from. But, I mean, what what did you think of the film? Did you think it was effective? I mean, it opened by... I didn't... I know very little about the, the subject matter of this film, I'll be honest, about DuPont Chemicals and Teflon and, and what this film covered. Mm. And I came away feeling like I'd learned a lot from it. So I think in terms of its approach as docudrama, and I do this... When I watch films of this nature, I generally go off and then have a look and see how accurate they were. And but by all accounts, this is a fairly accurate, accurate retelling of events. Mm. Um, what did you think of it from that perspective? Did you think it... it it, it was the right balance or? yeah I, I kind of do but then doesn't that open it up to a very obvious um sort of response which is couldn't we have just had a really well-made documentary about this I, well this is what this is kind of what i was coming around to yeah you would, oh, this is what i was hoping you would say pete <laughs> yeah well well I've, I've done my bit uh yeah I, I i sort of feel like um it it's functional but like you know todd haynes being a director who i think is capable of, of really good work and and this is fine but I I wanted him maybe to have more license to bring a bit more of himself maybe to the material. Whereas here he feels kind of like a director for hire because you've got to get from A to B to C and you've got to tell this story with a sort of chronology that it has inherent in the story. And of course, it's based on a magazine article, which is always the kind of genesis for a film that leaves me feeling a little bit nervous about what we're going to get in the end, you know, because you're expanding on a few pages in a magazine. But uh, yeah, does it do a decent story? Uh, job of telling the story of this uh, Teflon DuPont situation at the time and over those years it certainly does is it kind of eye-opening yeah absolutely but could it have just been a really well-made documentary that probably would have gripped me even you know more strongly than this yeah I think so also mm, I, see, I see where you're coming from I think yeah it's, I think it's a it's a well put together film but it feels very it's a very functional film I think it's like it's almost I think we talk we've talked about when I describe things as kind of filmmaking by numbers this is a this kind of an in issues film that felt painted by numbers in parts um, made by a director who doesn't know who's who has made a lot more interesting films than this so it's it's fine it's a it's a decent night it's a decent enough night out of the cinema but it's not a particularly exciting film I think there could there was there was room to make something make something a bit bolder from this material perhaps yeah yeah, and I mean, as a sort of character study of the sort of attritional damage done to an individual when clashing with a giant, you know, monolithic corporation, it, it's good work. You know, from an actor's performance from Ruffalo also, it's good work. I mean, seeing this man reduced to a sort of twitching mess on the floor when his body finally gives way because he just can't fight any longer, it's good stuff. But yeah, the takeaway is sort of a... I I I don't know necessarily how much we achieved from from dramatizing this rather than just making it even even it could have been you know a, a a limited series a limited documentary series that might have been able to delve a bit deeper into the major players in the Dupont situation because we wouldn't have to spend maybe as much time with the uh, the central attorney uh, who, by the way, is very much still with us um, and still on the campaign trail. And in the film, in fact, yeah. In the film, yeah, I enjoyed yeah. that. The sort of cameo yeah. appearances yeah. that they mentioned at the end from a few real players, him, his wife um, and others. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed that stuff. I appreciate that there's a lot of hard work uh, has gone into both 
the dogged pursuit of the truth and justice and also into the creation of this particular piece of work but I just wish it had, had sort of um followed through on its punch a little bit more and just floored me a little bit rather than the sort of jabbing me with facts and then and then coming to an end. Yeah, and that's not to say it's a bad film. I don't I don't want to kind of end this on a on a negative because it's you know it's it's decent. It's no, decent but I feel enough. like we've it's been a... saying throughout like it's not a bad film. It's not that's a bad very film. True, actually. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's yeah. certainly not. I think you can't make any mistakes about what we're saying here. But but then at the same time, we both seem to be lining up on the kind of ah, but yet kind of uh, conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think we'll we'll close it on. It's not a bad film, but. <laughs> yes indeed but it's not the end of the show though paul because we have a part of the show that we call credits where we credit something from maybe outside the world of movies although that is not um you know a requirement of this section anything at all this week that you want to give credit to paul uh so yeah this week i wanted to give a shout out to the so the final fantasy 7 remake uh, launches next month on playstation 4 um final fantasy 7 is the first video game to have ever made me cry and uh i think probably cost me a couple of grades on my gcse so i I love Final Fantasy VII. I put a hundred plus hours into it. I completed everything bar Ruby Weapon. If you've played it, you'll know what I mean. Uh, so I'm very excited about Square Enix's remake where they've rebuilding it from the ground up with a new combat system with incredible looking graphics. Uh, they split it into parts, which is a bit odd. But this launches next month and place the Sony have put a demo out this week. There is a Final Fantasy VII remake demo out there. Um, and it pleases me to say, although they've changed the combat system away from turn-based to real-time combat, I absolutely love this demo. It was the most fun I've had with a video game for ages, and I'm incredibly excited about the Final Fantasy VII remake. Just don't expect a podcast for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see how quickly you get through it. Um, I yeah. raced through something this week, Paul, and that was uh, fittingly Formula One Drive to Survive. This is a series that people might be aware of. It's uh, it was on Netflix. The first season, anyway, was on Netflix around. A year ago um, and now we have series two covering the most recent completed Formula One season. I'm not a Formula One guy Paul I mean the last season of this show I watched on recommendation going in saying I won't care I don't really care about Formula One I used to when I was younger and I don't anymore but it really grabbed me the first series because what you get is I think 10 episodes in each series that just whisk you through all of the highlights of a race season so you cut out all of the fat, you cut out all of the stuff that you'll sit through for hours on like a Sunday afternoon, paying additional money to the B Sky B Corporation if you go that way. And instead you get, yeah, all of the highlights, all of the great stuff. Although be aware, the last season of the Formula One included uh, one particular low light in terms of the death of a Formula Two driver, which features prominently in one of the episodes of the show but in terms of like getting behind the scenes a bit obviously this is a bit stage managed we know that but getting behind the scenes and seeing what it takes to get a formula one car on the track i think they do a really good job with that they have episodes that have sort of different themes that link that episode so it's not a drama then it, so it's not a drama it is about it's a formula documentary one. series so yeah about Oh, okay. I thought it was no, a drama. No. I thought it was a Formula One drama. No, no, thing. it's oh, okay. a, a documentary series. So, like each week, you'll go usually to a team, and you'll learn about, for example, the the head of that team in terms of the um, mechanics and the people who work on the car. So they'll always have a team head. Some of those are really great characters. One of them, in terms of the Red Bull team, is the guy who's married to Jerry Halliwell. So we get a him and Jerry Halliwell getting a chopper episode. It's not 
just about that kind of fluffy stuff. It's really about his boots on the ground work with Team Red Bull and trying to get them sort of relevance within uh, within Formula One, for want of a better word. And then some of the drivers, obviously, you've got these incredibly driven, uh, sort of obsessive young men, some of them as young as 20 or 21 years of age, who are nailing along at 200 miles an hour, hoping to just get that one podium finish that will make them a capital G guy in the mm. game and potentially set them up for sort of life for them and their their families. Because obviously, every time we cut to Lewis Hamilton at age 35, I think he is now, winning here, I believe, no spoilers, it's already been in the news, I think his fifth or sixth uh, consecutive Formula One championship, you realise that guy has ascended to a level beyond almost almost every other sports person in terms of the financial rewards and the status that he's mm. achieved through this sport. So if you've got any interest in motorsport, I'd check it out. And to be honest with you, even if you haven't, give it a go because I think the human stories give it something that you might not expect. So yeah, that's uh, Formula One Drive to Survive. It's on Netflix. There are two series right now. Nice. Well, that does bring us to the end of the show. Um, so we will be back. Uh, we, before I do this, before I say we'll, we'll be back, well, we will be back next week. Uh, but contact details, you can find us uh, at Stranger Cinema on Twitter, Stranger Cinema on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back next week with reviews of Bloomhouse's Fantasy Island and Pixar's Onward. Um, one of those is the full title of the film. The other one is the studio and the title of the film. Uh, but that's it from us. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Shut up and sit down.